here. Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. While you're turning there, I just want you to know that uh, in 1464, I want to tell you this story. 1464, there was an artist who was a sculptor by the name of Agostino de Duccio. And he had been commissioned uh, to create this great sculpture uh, that would commemorate King David. And so he went to a quarry that was outside of Florence, Italy. And uh, whenever he got there, he was looking at the surface and in the quarry and thought that he had found the perfect, the perfect block of marble that he had picked out himself. And so he picked it, and, and dozens of men, this was so large, as they, as they cut this out of, uh, uh, out of the quarry, and they were going to be transporting it, dozens of men had to move this, and it took multiple days to get this slab of marble, and yes, I know you're thinking of ice cream right now, I, I am too, as I'm preaching, but this, this, this large block of marble back to Florence where he started work on it. The problem was this. He was looking at the surface and what he thought he saw looked good, but as he began to discover this, as he dug in a little more and began to chip away and chisel and do his work to create this sculpture, what he found was that it had too many flaws. What he found was that there were a lot of imperfections within this. What he found was that there were, there were a lot of veins that he didn't realize that were there, that he didn't believe, he really didn't believe was usable. So here's what he did. He abandoned the work. That, that block of marble sat in Florence, Italy for 10 years unused until another artist came along. Another artist decided he would try to salvage the project. And what he did was after that 10 years, he, he, he started trying to pick up where, where the other artist had left off. But... What he found was that also was, in the way he viewed it, a monument of a mistake. Just a monument of a So he walked away as well. Then it sat for another 25 years. <laughs> another 25 years. Every time somebody would walk by, they would just think, monument of mistake. It's unusable. It can't be, you know, it's deemed unable to be used, unworkable. Until another artist in 1501 who was a young genius that was emerging, a young genius had taken what had been chipped and chiseled and ultimately looked upon as unworkable and he began to see in his eyes not a mess or mistake, he saw a masterpiece. And he began to work at this and created a 17-foot sculpture that you would recognize today. Maybe some of you have seen this. It's, the, it's David. It's in Italy. In Florence there, Michelangelo, where others saw a mistake, saw a masterpiece. What's interesting about this story of this sculpture is, and it's almost ironic how it parallels with, with the story of David. Like, like just as this, this piece was rejected by men, just as this piece was overlooked and maybe deemed by men as unusable, then there comes along who sees something in it that nobody else sees. Just as you see this, they see this, we see this in the life of David. When we see someone who is also broken, you're going to see someone who is extremely flawed. We've been in a series called After God's Own Heart. And what we're doing is we're taking a look in the life of David. Now, we spent a few weeks kind of building up to this point as we begin to unpack his life and understand what it means to, uh, to look at this character what you're going to see is you're going to see a man who is very imperfect. You're going to see a man who has a lot of flaws. And I think there's something that's important for us to take away from this. And 
when we, when we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, we hardly mentioned David because I felt like it was important that you understood what was going on in the life of Israel. That you understood that they were rejecting kind of the season that they were in. They were rejecting God and they were looking for someone visible and they demanded a king. They wanted a king, so God gave them what they wanted at this point. And again, it's, it's just truly interesting to see that when we look at David's life, what we are going to see is that God does not edit out the flaws and the mistakes, the sins, the mess-ups of this man's life. And there's a reason in that. David's story has been given to us. What you should know about David, it's interesting that there are, there are more chapters devoted to David in the Bible more than anyone else, any other character, excluding Jesus Christ himself. We ought to know about his life then, right? If much of the Bible is devoted to, to, to understanding this character and understanding his life, and what you find when you look at David is you find a very earthy, a very human story. You find in David that he set up Israel for its greatest season of prosperity. You're going to see that David sets this up, and of course he has a son named Solomon who would get to experience this and and build a, a beautiful temple. And what you'll find in David is you'll find that most of the Psalms were written by him. You're going to find that David was was a military mind unlike any others, yet he also was an artist. This rare combination. I think that God has allowed him to be like this because all kinds of people can relate to him. Maybe you're not a fighter, you're more of a lover, okay? And you're going to see that David David has this this artistic side to him where we are still singing his songs 3,000 years later. It's incredible when you look at his life. I mean, you can think of him essentially as this warrior poet, okay? When you look at his life... You see that the Lord would even use him, use him, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write prophecy regarding Jesus Christ himself, our Messiah. David is used in incredible ways. What God does with David is so important to us because what we see is that God is revealing to us what it means to be human. God is going to show what it means to be human, but God is going to show that in his tragic flaws... In his imperfections, that God can still work in the midst of our lives because we all can relate to him. We all are going to be able to relate to the mess-ups that you're going to find within his life. We all can understand that that as we look at him, we, we see this, that God can work with us. And God desires to work with broken and imperfect people. What he loves is he loves humility. He loves those that that are teachable. I love scripture does not, I love that it does not gloss over the mistakes of this man. I love the authenticity of that, and I know you do as well. I can connect with that. When I look at his life, I I look and I think, just as I in some ways can connect with Saul, and we see his downfall, what we look at is we see David, and we're going to see there's some, there's some similarities, but there's some differences in how they respond to their mistakes. They make a lot of the same mistakes, but they respond differently. Where one gets arrogant, one gets defensive, one gets prideful, like we all can, right? What you're going to see in David is you're going to see that he also makes a lot of mistakes, but when he is confronted, there's humility. There's teachableness. 
There's some things for us to take away from this. I love what uh, Eugene Peterson in his book, Leap Over a Wall. It's a great book, okay? And as Eugene Peterson could only put it, this is what he says. And it's a a lengthy quote. It's going to be up on the screen. But I think it's going to help you understand what I'm getting at regarding this character of David. Check this out. The David story is a plunge into the earthiness of our humanity. David's story is your story and my story. He is so emphatically human. Check this out. David fighting, praying, loving, yes, sinning. And we're going to see that. David conditioned by the morals and assumptions of a brutal Iron Age culture. David, what do we do with this? With his eight wives. Peterson didn't hide that there. But what he left out was David and his eight mother-in-laws, okay? He didn't, he didn't add that in. David angry. You don't get angry, do you? David devious. David generous. David dancing. Sorry, Baptist, okay? There's nothing, absolutely nothing that God can't and doesn't use to work his salvation and holiness into our lives. This is what he says about David. This, to me, is the most important thing that he captures here. David isn't an ideal life, but David is an actual life. It just speaks of his humanity. It speaks of us understanding, right, um, that he's a person like we are. The other, it says the David story, like most other Bible stories, presents us not with a polished ideal to which we aspire, but with a rough-edged actuality in which we see humanity being formed. The God presence in the earth human conditions. The David story immerses us in a reality that embraces the entire range of, range of humanness, stretching from the deep interior of our souls to the farthest reach of our imaginations. No other biblical story has this range to it. And then he'll go on essentially, and this is what he says. David, for time's sake, I won't read the rest of it. David deals with God. David has confrontations with God. But to deal with God and to have confrontations with God is essentially this. It means to be human and to be alive. That God, God desires to deal with us. And work with us in spite of the flaws that we see. And you may be thinking, why in the world do do we need to set all this up about David? And this is so important you understand this. Because it's imperative that we do not idolize David. This is a story about David, but you need to know that it's always more of a story about God. We're going to look at his life, but I want you to see that God works through people like this. God loves to work through people who are who are often forgotten, as we're going to read in a moment. David loves to work through people who make mistakes. God loves to to work through people who have imperfections and flaws and don't have it all together. (sighs) Take a deep breath because that includes all of us. We don't have it together. This is what God is about. It reveals God's character to us. It reveals who he loves to use, what he loves to do through you. What he loves to do through people like me. So when we pick up in the story today, the people of Israel, they have rejected God and they have demanded a king. God says, okay, I'll give you a king. And they get a guy by the name of Saul. And we started looking at his life last week. And he, on the outward, 
from outward appearances, looks like what a king should look like. Scripture says it like this. He's head and shoulders tall above everyone else. He's the most handsome man in all of Israel. I mean, he's got some confidence issues, but there's something about this guy that when people look at him, they think king. They think king. But internally, there was character issues. There were trust issues. There was insecurity. There was... And it's not saying God can't use people with all of those things. That's not the story of Saul. The story of Saul, again, is that we see a lot of parallels with David. We just see that David actually is willing to deal with God in those things. Okay? So, so again, Saul, although he was a failure, is somebody that many of us can greatly empathize with. And that's the, that's the design of this. So what we find is Samuel... Tells Saul that just as he tore Samuel's cloak on that day that he had disobeyed God again, the kingdom was going to be torn away from Saul. And, and so Samuel goes through a period of mourning where, where he doesn't know what's next for Israel. And so here we find in 1 Samuel chapter 16, what we're going to see is that God was at work all along in an obscure town called Bethlehem. And that Samuel was going to be told by God to go to Bethlehem to anoint what would be the next king. Now, Saul would continue to be the king. You should know this. But what we see is that there is an anointing that is going to take place for the next king. King in waiting. For Samuel 16, verse 1. I'm not going to read all of the verses. We'll hit some high points here. I urge you to go read it all for yourself later. But what we find is this. Is this. Now, the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So Samuel, fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there. For I have selected one of his sons to be my king. So Samuel goes down to Bethlehem and and, uh, it says that the people trembled when Samuel came into town. He was a prophet of God. And a lot of times that season the prophet of God was not always bringing the best of news. And so people were terrified. Why have you come to town? We won't read that, but check it out. I mean, they're terrified. Um, And actually, Samuel said, what I actually came to do is to offer some sacrifices to God. And we're going to have a barbecue. Okay, so let's have a good time. And oh, so he has this conversation, I imagine, that goes on with Jesse. Because he's told, "You you need to talk with Jesse. And so he says to him, the prophet of God says to him, hey, Jesse, got some good news for you, man. The next king of Israel is going to come from your line. It's going to be one of your sons. And I imagine Jesse is like, what? Are you kidding me? What about Saul? Well, let's not worry about him right now. But let's just talk about this. We're going to anoint one of your sons today to be the next king. And, And I imagine Jesse's just so proud at this moment. Me, my family, you're going to honor us like this. Who could it be? I know. Look at him. He's over there, he's tall, he's handsome, he's my firstborn, he's our pride and joy. There he is. So here we go again. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, even Samuel thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Surely. Here we go with the outward appearance thing. I mean, do you think there's a point that God is making here to us about this external image, once again, and a thing that we value so much. 
There is Eliab. He looks like a king. We see this, right? He has a commanding presence, most likely. He's the eldest. He, he, uh, he's probably a leader. He's probably tall like the others and good-looking. You know, you, you, you thought that if anyone would have learned their lesson, that Samuel would have learned not to judge the external appearance because there was nobody that was better looking than Saul at this point. And yet he was a failure. What we take away from this, and I think it's something that we all see, is that even people of God, even great prophets of God like this, if they can be charmed by the outward appearance, so can all of us. And many of us, that's how we judge others and we look and we base judgments upon people by just what we see on the outside. Sometimes it could be a good you know, they look good. Sometimes they don't look maybe up to what we think they should, right? And so we cast judgment. And what God is saying is, this is not how I do things. I don't judge based upon this external appearance. In fact, what you may see may look like a king on, an out, on the outside, but I'm looking for more of a king on the inside. I'm looking for someone with, with the kind of heart that follows after me. So surely Eliab must be this, but verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height. Now this is the second time that looks has been attached with height, and I'm getting tired of it as a shorter man, okay? <laughs> now notice what God says next. For I have rejected him. So take that, tall people. Okay, I'm not teasing. <laughs> I love my tall people too. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. This is the key verse in the whole chapter right here. God doesn't see things the way that we see them. He doesn't see you and the external stuff. What he is doing is he is, you know this, right? He is moving among, as Dustin put it, the trash bag today. He's moving among us. And he's not looking at how you look on the outside and how I look on. He is scanning our hearts today. He wants to know what's in here. He wants to know if this is something that he can use. This is the kind of God that we serve. Look at what it says. The Lord doesn't see them the way you see them, things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance. And some of you have been the recipient of that maybe in some way. In a negative way, but the Lord looks at the heart. When we talk about heart, a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart, you need to know that we're not talking about this, and the scripture speaks of this, it's not this organ that's pumping our blood. The heart to the Hebrew is this, it is the mind, the will, the, the emotions. It's the person. It's what makes you, it's what makes you. Mind, the will, the way you think, the way... The, the way you purposed in your life, right? And this is what God is looking. And so, by the way, what's interesting is if you look at Eliab's story, and we don't have time to do this today, but what you're going to find is that, yes, again, he looked good on the outside. You're going to find a critical spirit in him. You're going to find a jealous spirit in him because he's jealous of David. You're going to find um, just a lot of characteristics that are similar, the insecurity. You're going to see that it's the same thing that we see in Saul. And we're going to see this over and over again. So Samuel says to Jesse, not him, got any other sons? Well, as a matter of fact, I do. I have, uh, I have some others. So it must be this next guy, okay? 
Uh, we won't read all of this, but you should know this, that this guy maybe is a little less impressive than Eliab, but he's still probably good-looking, smart, athletic, you know, looks like he has it all together. Maybe he's not the all-American athlete, but he's somebody that God could work with, right? Check it out. Here's what we see. This happens over and over and over again, seven more times. Do you think it got awkward in that room? <laughs> this had to be the most awkward setting for him to go, nope, got another one? Nope. Nope. Those boys were just walking around. <laughs> okay. All right. So we see this, verse 10, in the same way all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Awkward. None of these. And, and, then, and then I love uh, the next question, okay? Um, are, these, are these all the sons that you have? So I envision Samuel, or excuse me, uh, Jesse going, oh, there is one more. We don't talk about him much. But I do have another one. Um, have any of you ever, parents, you ever forgotten a child? <laughs> okay. Um, maybe some of you have been forgotten before. Uh, um, I forgot Luke one time at our old building. I left our son whenever he was little. Um, Hope and I take separate vehicles to church. And uh, I thought she had him. She thought I was, supposed to, I was supposed to get him. Let me clarify, because she's in the service, okay? Um, <laughs> It was me, got home, he wasn't there. It's like, where's Luke? I left him at church. Driving up to get him, father of the year. I look off down the sidewalk on McElroy, and you know, you know your kids walk. You know their gait, right? And I'm getting closer, and he's miffed, <laughs> okay? And I'm like, sorry, I forgot you. Maybe you've been forgotten before. Maybe you've been overlooked David wasn't even being considered by his own father at this point. It's interesting. You know, Samuel has to ask, do you have others? He didn't say, hey, I got another one, man. Let's keep going because you said this. Was, no, do you, do you have another? So David wasn't even on the radar. Isn't that interesting? You may think you're not on the radar, but you are on the radar with God. You're on the radar with him as he's scanning. And look at what it says. This is what Jesse says. There is still the, what does it say? Youngest. Now, we hear that, and he's like, oh, he's the baby of the family. The baby always gets the most attention. That word, the way this translates, okay, first of all, he says he's out in the field watching sheep and goats. The word youngest here in the Hebrew is hakatan, hakatan. It's almost like hakalugi, okay, or it's kind of like that. Um, Youngest isn't the best translation. Here's what it means. There's, yes, he's young, but what it means is, ready? That he's unimportant. The youngest, but he's insignificant. I know for some of you listening, you feel this. He's the one that's overlooked. It's the word that describes actually the pinky finger. It's cute. But, you know, you can live without it, right? I mean, don't try that, but here's what the word means. Some, some 
uh, scholars say it's the runt. I know we all kind of get that. We understand what the runt is, the runt of the litter. The runt, the point is we have gone from the who's who of the ones that look the greatest and the eldest to the who's he. This is what we have, this is what we've moved to, right? And what was he doing? He was doing this job, this job that nobody wants to do. He is a shepherd. Shepherds are looked down upon in Israel. He is tending to the sheep. He is out in the field forgotten. So, here's what we see. Send for him at once. Verse 11. We, Samuel said, we will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him, and he was dark and... All right, so he's not a troll, okay? But I want you to see this, that dark, here's what this means, okay? Uh, in the original language, it's, it's, it's like he's, the word that might be in your Bibles is ruddy, R-U-D-D-Y. It's disheveled, smells of the field. It's, it's tanned, okay, because he's out in the sun, dark, um, and, and, and it's, it's just kind of dirty. That's kind of what it means, okay? It wasn't like a compliment. But then it does say that he's handsome again, right? Again, he, but, but this, this kind of idea is this. Again, we're not dealing with someone who was hideous or anything. What we're seeing is this. The point is it wasn't all about his looks, but what, what is being said here in comparison to the others is he didn't look like a king. He didn't look like a warrior king that they were looking for. Remember, that's what they wanted. They wanted a William Wallace-looking kind of guy, and what they were getting was Justin Bieber. <laughs> Good-looking guy, but not who you want probably leading you out into battle. Okay, that's kind of what's going on here and what is being said. And then it says this, with beautiful eyes. I love what Beth Moore says in her study on David. She says that women can get away with saying to another woman, Maybe at the checkout stand. You have beautiful eyes. Do you know that? Men, we cannot do that with one another, all right? <clears throat> no, sir. <clears throat> you have beautiful eyes. Did anybody ever tell you that? <laughs> we can't do that. In fact, men, if you're sitting next to another man, just try it right now. It, it, it doesn't work. But, but it says that he has beautiful eyes. There's, there's, there is something about him, okay? And then this is what it says. And the Lord said... This is the one. The one that nobody else thinks can do that. He's the one. This is essentially what's being said. I pick him. If you maybe were last picked on the playground, be on a team, maybe you were overlooked. Do you know what this means for you? God's not looking at all of these external qualities God's not looking at your resume. What God is looking at as he scans is what's here. That's what he has always done. God is making, why all the drama? Why didn't he just say, "Go, you're going to meet Jesse, Samuel, and instead of all this drama, just, hey, go. He's got a young one that's out in the field. Why didn't God just say it like that? 
God is making a point with Samuel. God is making a point for us today, isn't he? God is showing us how he rejects this external, that we, this image that we value above everything else. This is the point God makes. And here's, here's just a big takeaway for you and for me is God consistently chooses the unexpected ones. He consistently chooses this. You'll find this theme that God loves to partner with the underdog. God loves to partner with the ones that others overlook. And you'll find this all throughout the word of God. You'll find this starting in the book of Genesis. You'll see that God accepts Abel, the younger brother's offering over Cain. You'll see that God decides to use and partner with the younger brother Jacob over Esau, who was the all-American stud. You'll find that he picks Joseph over all the older brothers. You'll find that, and this is fascinating, he picks Israel over all the other empires of that time. Israel, this obscure little group of people. Isn't this what God does? So what, what, what does this mean for us? Well, listen, if, 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 you're, if you're the runt, and I'm not saying you are, I'm not making eye contact with anybody right now. If, if you're dirty, if you're disheveled, if you're the ones that others overlook, if you have the cute face, but you don't look like the warrior king, you're a good candidate for God to do something great through you. This is what we also see. Another takeaway is that character is what matters most to God. Your character, what's going on within you, that key verse is the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. The Lord doesn't see. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And from this study of Saul, if you haven't looked at this, when God looks for leaders, he doesn't value what we value. When God is scanning this place, he values character far much more than those with great charisma. Now, if you have charisma, God can use that too. But what he's looking for in you is God is looking for humility. Because that is what God exalts. God's not looking for the best dresser. God's not looking for the one with the highest IQ. He can use these things. God's not looking for the, the impressive resume. God is looking for a person, and this is what we're going to find in David, who is imperfect, who has great qualities, who has courage, who who walks close with God, and what you're going to find is you're going to find that he's very teachable and humble. You know, it's interesting. We'll get to the story. What you're going to see is where Saul, when Saul was confronted by a prophet of God, do you know what you find? Saul makes excuses. Saul gets prideful. Saul gets insecure. Saul deflects. Saul blames human nature, right? David also makes a massive mistake. And what you're going to find in David is you're going to see a brokenness and a humility. It's a response. A response to God in the confrontations with God. We're talking about a man or woman after God's own heart. If you'll recall, we brought this up last week. Chuck Swindoll's book, A Person After God's Heart, values the things that God values. He or she is burdened by the things that burden God. A person after God's own heart, when God says, go right, you go right. And this is maybe most important. When God says, stop something, you do indeed stop because he is God and Lord over your life. 
And again, your response. What is the response that looks like? Blows me away because this is the kind of person that God was looking for and he found this in David. A punk kid out in a field. A punk kid out in a pasture. that Nobody else thought had it in him. And we just need to understand as we look at his story, the questions we need to ask ourselves. What do I value most whenever I see others? Maybe you're in a place of leadership. What do you value most? It's not that external things don't matter. I mean, we do see that people do judge that. But what do you value most when you are looking for, if you're looking for a spouse, what do you look for? What do you, if you're an employer, what do you look for in, in those that, that work with you? If you are a parent, what are you cultivating most within your own kids? What do you value most? And here is maybe something for you to consider. What do you look for in a church? What do you look for in a spiritual leader? Another question. Do you spend as much time, effort, energy, cultivating your own character? Cultivating your character as much as you do your external image that you're trying to portray. And don't we live in a culture that values that above everything else? This image that we seek to portray. There's a guy um, who's a journalist for the New York Times named David Brooks. And he talks about resume virtues and he talks about eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are those things that look impressive on the outside, right? She accomplished this. He graduated with this honor. Those, those are good things. You know, I, I do a lot of funerals, and I know when I sit down with a family, they may mention that, but do you know that's not the thing they talk about most? What they talk about is the character of that person that they loved. She would do anything for you. He would, he was so generous. He didn't make snap judgments about people. There wasn't a person that he didn't love. You hear, that's what you hear more than anything else whenever you sit down. But what's interesting is how much effort and energy we focus on and the resume virtues above the other stuff. What, what, what will they say at your funeral? What will they say? Well, if character is what God values and it's what matters most to him, the question we have to ask is, is where does he do this? Where does he develop this? Well, God develops our character in the pasture, not in the palace. So if you study this story, what you're going to find is that if you look at Saul, Saul is coronated, he is anointed, he ascends straight to the throne. Too much power, too fast, and we got a problem with arrogance. David is anointed. His family doesn't even throw him a party. Instead, his brothers are probably just looking at him with such disdain. His father doesn't say, all right, we're, we're going to celebrate this today. You, you know what happens with David? Back out in the pasture. Still with the anointing oil of being a, a king and waiting, still on his head, back out in the pasture. Back out in the places that are forgotten. When you look at David's story, I imagine, imagine these uh, 
these brothers were looking at Samuel and thinking, this guy's getting senile. Remember, he was older and they wanted to replace him. This guy's getting senile. Verse 13, so as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day on. So the Spirit of the Lord is on him when Samuel returned to Ramah, and we don't hear David ascending to the palace. I mean, it, 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 it wasn't just days, guys, that he's back in the pasture. It wasn't even weeks. Do you know there are many that believe it was years? Did you know it would nearly be 20 years before David would actually, David would actually ascend to the throne? Now, he would get to the palace, but he would go as a kind of a servant to Saul. Saul loved him at first, then Saul got jealous, and then Saul wanted to kill him because David was rising in the military ranks and people were noticing him and loving him. The next thing you know, Saul is chunking spears at his face. David goes on the run and now David is where? David is in the wilderness. And these are the places where David at some point must have thought, I thought I was anointed the next king. God, did you make a mistake? But what God is doing is forging his character and getting king that we're still talking about today, getting a king ready, working on his heart, working on his character. Chuck Swindoll, again in his book, talks about David's pasture, and he describes it like this. Obscurity, the field that he was in, monotony, and reality. Obscurity, nobody was paying attention to him. It was just a field with sheep. The monotony was was just this idea of it's just the same old, same old every day. Maybe your job feels like that. Same old, same old. I'm moving the sheep from over here to this field. i got to get them water. While he's there, well, I'll practice with my sling a little bit. Maybe this will come in handy. I don't know. Okay. Um, hey, I'm going to pull out my guitar. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play some tunes. Maybe I'll write a few songs. You know, I'm out in the field with this sheep. This might be good. This could be catchy. The Lord is my shepherd. Nah, it'll never catch on. But it's in the obscure places, isn't it? It's in the monotony of your everyday lives that God is forming within you what he wants to do through you next. But you've got to be humble enough to receive that. And you know what I want you to hear is you've got to, you've got to embrace the pasture. We want to resist it. We want to get angry. Embrace it. Let God use this season. If you're in the pasture right now, not the pal, in the pasture, in the wilderness. We said it in the spring. Don't waste your wilderness. Embrace it as God is doing something in you. He doesn't waste these seasons in our life. You got to know it's a process, okay? Here's your last point. If you short circuit the process because you won't embrace it, short circuit the product. And you don't develop the character that God wants to use. The process is where God is working in you. And you embrace this. Maybe as a, as a mom, mom, what'd you do today? Oh, just changing another diaper. Changing another diaper, sigh, you know. God is building character in you as you take care of a precious one of the Lord that was created in his image. 
business man, business woman. What would you do today? I hate the job that I'm in. I can't stand it. God says, understand that I still can work in this monotony of where you're at. And I'm doing something within you. I want you to be faithful. Student, what would you do today? Studying something I'll never use ever in my life. I can't tell you how many times I said that, okay? All right. It's about algebra, okay? And, um, but the reality is this. God's building character in those places. That's what he's doing. He doesn't waste the, the, the rule of the pasture while you wait is this. And Jesus echoes this. Faithfulness in the small produces power. Power in the bigger things he entrusts to you. But he's not going to entrust those to you until you prove faithfulness in the pasture first. It took a while for David. He wrote a lot of psalms. Go read them. You know what about? Waiting. Waiting. Laments. Crying out. Where are you, God? How long, God? But here's the beauty of it. At least he's dealing with God. Are you dealing with God today? What do I do if I'm in the pasture? Be faithful. Be intentional. And be humble. That's the kind of heart that God uses and he loves to partner with. I want to invite you to pray with me today. Friends, we, uh, we have to remember this story about David. It is a great story, but you got to know this. Everything about it is pointing us to Jesus. Everything. You're going to find so many similarities. When you look at David's life, David was overlooked. Jesus was overlooked. <laughs> David was in this obscure place called Bethlehem, Jesus was born not in the palace, in the pasture. He chose it, right? We, we find so many things. David was anointed by the Holy Spirit and, and goes back to the wilderness. Jesus, at his baptism, was anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. And then he goes right out into the wilderness. There's so many things that point to Jesus. It's a setup for Jesus. David was a shepherd. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Do you see, do you see that? David, though, was flawed. But do you know this is where the story breaks down? Because Jesus was perfect. But the perfect one to give us his righteousness became sin. When he went to the cross for us. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I urge you today to put your faith in Jesus. He is humble and lowly in spirit because he chooses to be. He is God Almighty who loves you, pursues you, has seen you, has seen you in the obscurity, has seen you in the brokenness, and he loves you and he wants you in his family. If you've never put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, right now humble yourself before Him. Invite Him into your life. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe You are the Son of God. I receive the gift of eternal life. I ask You to forgive me of my sins. I believe You not only died for me, but I believe in faith also that You are alive, that You overcame death. I don't even understand how that happened, but I just 
you to share that with someone. Share that with a friend of yours or maybe a parent or whoever. Share it with one of us. One of the ways you can do that is you can pull your phone out. You can go to your messaging on your phone and you can text EBC follow. And that will go to one of our pastors and one of our pastors would love to follow up with you to celebrate with you and to maybe answer questions that you have about what it means to follow Jesus Christ as your Savior. We love you. We thank you for being here today. Pastor Randy's going to close us as I welcome him up. You guys can go ahead and look up. And uh, God bless you. Thanks for coming here today. You know,